would please turn with me in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 10. We're continuing our way through Matthew chapter 10. As we come to the very end of it, we're going to find ourselves here for just a while, probably four to five weeks, at the tail end of Matthew chapter 10. The song we just sang, she says that, help me to never seek a crown, for my reward is giving glory to you. The scriptures do promise rewards for those who would serve Christ. And there are mentions throughout the New Testament of specific crowns that are apparently awarded to those who are faithful to Christ. In fact, Paul, at the end of his life, makes the statement to Timothy in 2 Timothy. He says, you know, I have finished the race. I have been faithful. There is now laid up for me the crown of righteousness. And so there is this indication throughout the scriptures that there are rewards for those who are faithful for serving Jesus. And we're coming to the end of Matthew chapter 10, in which he has called his disciples, you and me, to be faithful in representing him and presenting a verbal testimony for him. That testimony is guaranteed to bring persecution. But it's not all bad news. For while the world hates to be told of the good news of Jesus Christ, Jesus loves to reward those who cling to it, who cherish it, and who proclaim it. If you would, look with me, Matthew chapter 10. As you're flipping this morning, I don't want you to just go to Matthew chapter 10. I want you to also turn in your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 3. Um, we're going to be looking specifically at 1 Corinthians chapter 3 this morning. This particular passage uh, is going to present us with some interesting challenges, and I thought it would behoove us just to take a couple of weeks to review some things. This message that we're going to listen to today is an introductory message of sorts in which we're going to unpack more specifically some of the privileges, some of the blessings, some of the rewards that Jesus has in mind for those of us who are faithful to serve Him. And so we're going to begin and probably take the month of July to look at some of these things in specific detail. Jesus alludes to that here in Matthew chapter 10, specifically in verse 40. After urging his disciples to present a verbal witness, a verbal testimony for him, after urging his disciples to acknowledge him before men and promising them, in fact, that such testimony will bring persecution, he concludes with this, Matthew chapter 10, verse 40. Look with me. Whoever receives you, receives me. And whoever receives me receives the one who sent me. The one who receives a prophet, because he is a prophet, will receive a prophet's reward. And the one who receives a righteous person, because he is a righteous person, will receive a righteous person's reward. And whoever gives one of these little ones even a cup of cold water because he is a disciple, truly I say to you, he will by no means lose his reward. Let's, uh, let's pray and have a, a word of prayer and ask God to open our minds to understand what he's saying to us in the text this morning. If you would, bow with me. Father, we thank you so much for uh, the promise that is there for us. We thank you so much, Lord, that you are not only commanding us for our own good, but that there is also in serving you reward and glory and honor. And Lord, we know that the apostles themselves were not ashamed to pursue or to chase after such things. Lord, I pray that you would help us to understand more fully what awaits those who are faithful to you. And I pray, God, that as we consider some of these things this morning, as we begin to look at this topic and meditate upon it, to dwell upon it, that you, Lord, would create within us the desire to pursue those things which will bring everlasting pleasure, eternal honor, and will, most of all, Lord, bring joy and happiness to your heart. As we reflect on the sacrifice that you made to save us, knowing that there is nothing we could ever do to earn our salvation or to earn the privilege of being called sons and daughters, knowing, Lord, that it is simply by your grace 
that we are adopted into your family and saved for all of eternity. We see that there are still things which make you happy and that we still have the opportunity to work for your joy and for our joy as well. Not for our salvation, but for happiness. I pray, God, that you would help us to chase after those things which will make us ultimately fully happy in the end. We love you, God. We pray that you'd open our minds to understand what you're saying in this text this morning. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. My professor and my mentor, Dr. Bell, he, uh, he was my systematic theology professor at, at university. He's fond of, of telling a story. It's one of those sermon illustrations that I've heard many pastors make, so it's not necessarily original to him. It's one of those things that I really couldn't cite or tell you who first originated it. Just know this isn't my original story. This is his story, and it's probably not even his story. We don't really know where it comes from. It's one of those things that just kind of gets passed around until it becomes, you know, folklore and myth. There's a downhill skier. He's decided to take up alpine skiing. You see, I thought that would be fitting because we're Canadians. We're cold weather people. So there's an alpine skier. He's a downhill skier, and uh, he's an amateur, and he decides he wants to try his hand at you know, trying out for the Olympic Games. And so he goes to the top of the hill, he straps on his skis, and he just rockets down that hill as fast as he possibly can. And his coach, who happens to be an Olympic, uh, an Olympic coach, he, he's waiting for him at the bottom with a, with a stopwatch in his hand, and the guy gets all the way to the bottom, and he pulls up and he says, wow, that was amazing. This is your first time to do this? Say, yep, I'm an amateur. I've never skied a day before in my life. I'm just flying down this hill. He says, yeah, you are you may have set a world record with how fast you're going. He said, I've never seen anybody fly down the hill that fast. He said, I'll have to double check my, my stopwatch against the, the official numbers, but you know, the good news is I'm pretty sure you, you broke a world record coming down that hill. He's like, wow, that's awesome. He's like, so you think I'll make the Olympic team? He's like, I don't know about that. He says, what? I broke the world record? I flew down this hill? What, what's the problem? He says, well, you, you see those little flags up there? You see, those things are called gates, and you have to kind of go through them, and if you don't, then there's like time that's added. So when we add up the fact that you missed not one or two, but every single gate on the course, then we'll have to figure out what your real time penalty will be, and I don't think you're going to actually make the Olympic team with that type of skiing skill. Now, that's kind of a funny chuckler. You could tell it better and get more laughs, but I, just for our purposes this morning, I, I just wanted to get through it uh, much the same way that the Alpine downhill racer got through his course, because I wanted to come to this singular proposition. Namely, for many Christians in life, we're holding on to Jesus, and we're rushing through life, and we're making great time, and we're eager for heaven, but we're missing the obstacles. And there's no ultimate penalty for missing those obstacles. There's no ultimate loss of salvation. You're not going to go to hell. But there is a loss in terms, of your, in terms of the alpine skier. You get deductions added. And for us, there will be some deductions added. See, the obstacles in life that we're called to hit, those gates we're, we're called to ski through, that's people. And to be a Christian, to follow after Jesus Christ, it doesn't mean that as you're going through life, if someone gets in your way, well, then you'll encounter that person only when they get in your way, and you'll share the gospel with them only when they get in your way. No, no, no. The Christian life, much like an alpine downhill skier, we see people who are in need. We see people who need the, the gospel. And we're not just going to sit back and be quiet and hope that those people wander in our path as we're rocketing through life. The Christian life, and what Jesus specifically calls us to here in Matthew chapter 10, is that when we see people who are in need of the gospel, we're to put our weight into it, crank those skis over, and to swerve ourselves, to slow our momentum, to change our inertia, and to try to meet those people where they are with the good news of what Jesus Christ has done for us. Our salvation, our going to heaven, is completely free. Based upon your believing in what Jesus Christ did for you on the cross, paying the penalty that you yourself could never pay, based on your receiving of that and believing in that and hoping in that, 
you will go to heaven. You got that free of charge. Jesus brought that into your life free of charge. Your going to heaven is completely an act of grace. As we step out and follow Jesus Christ, we're called to bring the gospel into the lives of others who do not know him so that they can receive Jesus free of charge as an act of grace. But for us, in order to do that, that will cost us. But the Lord delights to reward those who will help to save others. Look with me at the text. It makes the statement here in Matthew chapter 10. He says, whoever receives you will receive God. Whoever receives you receives me. I'm Jesus. I'm the one sending you. So whoever receives you receives me. Whoever receives me receives God. So anybody that listens to your message, ultimately they are welcoming God into their life. That's the first thing he says. Then he breaks it down into a series of categories. He says, whoever receives a prophet, because he is a prophet, will receive a prophet's reward. Then the next category says whoever receives a righteous person just because he's a righteous person will receive a righteous person's reward. And then the last category says whoever gives a cup of cold water to the least of these, to the little ones, okay? And when you read that, in fact, some of the older translations will render this as, you know, like children. That's not what it's saying here, little ones. And it makes a statement because he is a disciple, So we understand that this little one isn't necessarily an infant or a child. It's somebody who may just be a brand new believer because Christ says this little one who is my disciple. In other words, whoever extends a cup of cold water to even the most baby of Christians, newest of believers, such a small act as giving a cup of cold water, that's an act of hospitality, an act of compassion, even such a simple act as that, will receive a reward. And so Jesus is saying, I'm watching all of this, I'm tracking all of this, and I'm going to reward it. Now, there are a couple of questions we need to ask and that we need to answer before we can fully understand the grand totality of what Jesus is saying. And I want you to know that for those of you who trust in Jesus, this is all good news. There is no bad news here today. It is all positive Some of us are going to get good news. Some of us are going to get better news. And for a few of us, we're going to get really great news. But for every person in this room, it's nothing but positive. It's nothing but reward. First off, we we have to ask the question, what is this reward? What are we we talking about here? What, What does Jesus mean when he says reward? The next question we have to ask ourselves is, why does Jesus have these divisions? What is the meaning behind prophet and righteous person and just giving a cup of cold water to the least of the disciples? What what does he mean there? And so what is going on? And, And then lastly, what does it mean to receive? What does that mean, to receive the prophet or to receive the righteous person? Now, again, we're gonna just introduce this text today, and then we're gonna start going through the scriptures over the next month, looking at different things that are mentioned in the scriptures in terms of reward, and then we're going to come back to this text after having seen all that the scriptures have for us in terms of reward, we're going to come back and we're going to fully understand exactly what Jesus is promising to us right here in this text. So the first thing we need to do is we need to ask ourselves, what is the differentiation and what are these rewards and how does it mean to receive? I want you to flip with me over to 1 Corinthians chapter 3. For those of you who are not quite familiar with your Bibles, you've got the four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Then you've got the book of Acts. It's the uh, early history of the church. And then you've got Romans. It's that first meaty, sort of juicy chunk of just deep, deep theological stuff. And some of you are reading through that, and you're like, I don't get it. It's okay. It, t- it takes everybody a while to get Romans. Right after Romans, then you hit 1 Corinthians. Okay? So that's where we are, 1 Corinthians chapter 3. I want you to look specifically with me at verse 5. Let me set the context for you. The church at Corinth is like the worst church ever, okay? I mean, I, I, I love our church. We have a great church. This is one of those churches where if you're going to go pastor this church, 
you got to have God's grace. Like, it, it's going to take a lot of strength because if, if it was possible to be doing it wrong, that they're doing it wrong. I mean, if you could do it any way worse than this, I'm not sure how. They're, they're doing everything wrong. They're, uh, they're dividing over different leaders within the church. They're abusing the spiritual gifts. They're doing communion wrong. I mean, you just, you just, men, just think about what could possibly go wrong in a church. They're doing it. Now, the first issue that Paul wants to address here is the issue of the fact that these guys are dividing over church leaders. And he's taking the first couple of chapters to begin to unpack this division. We have a party spirit that has grown up within the church at Corinth. There are numerous leaders in the early church. You've got Peter and Paul, obviously. You've got a couple of other guys rolling around, namely Apollos. Now, Paul has gone to the Gentiles. Peter is still very much so involved with the Jerusalem church, mostly Jewish believers. Paul, at this point in time, he's rolling around the Mediterranean planting churches. He has planted a church in the city of Corinth, which, as most of you are aware, it's on the, the Greek peninsula there. It's in what in this day and age is called you know, Macedonia or Achaia. It's that, that sort of region right there um, you know, where modern-day Greece is. In fact, Corinth sits on uh, a narrow sort of isthmus it's a, a narrow strip of land and uh, they're famous for porting ships over land they hadn't built a canal or anything like that they had a they devised a system of rollers and pulleys and they were known for actually at the harbor in Corinth hoisting the ship out of the harbor putting it onto a, a contraption of rollers and rolling it across that narrow strip of land and then dropping it in the water on the other side so by going to Corinth you could save several weeks uh, of sailing time off of your journey from having to sail the whole distance around the, uh, the peninsula there. And so it was a trade town, it was a, it was a ship town, it was a harbor town. It was a town that had been destroyed and rebuilt. It was a town that in uh, 63 BC was ordered by Julius Caesar to be reconstructed. Sometime in the mid-2nd century, 143-150 BC, it had been raised to the ground. It had been burnt. So you had foundations that existed, and then you had relatively new structures that were popping up onto these foundations. By this point in time, in which Paul comes here in the middle of the 1st century to preach and to minister and to plant this church in Corinth, it was a thriving, booming, bustling shipping town. And, and these structures were all over the place, and yet... To the keen observer, if you were to walk through town, you would note that some of these structures were new, of a more modern, newer type of architecture, while residing on foundations that were very old. Now, as I said, the church in Corinth had developed a party spirit. There are multiple leaders in the early church, and these guys were breaking along factions. Certain people would say, I like to follow Peter. Others say, I like to follow Paul. And of course, there's this other guy named Apollos rolling around doing stuff. Some were saying, I like to follow Apollos. Paul is going to address that party spirit. Some of you are thinking, well, what does that have to do with rewards? Within the context of addressing the party spirit, Paul is going to make mention of rewards. So look with me. 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 5. He says, what then is Apollos? See, remember, these guys are arguing over who the greater leaders are going to be. He says, what then is Apollos? What is Paul? In other words, what's, what is the difference between these guys? What is the nature of these guys? And his response is, servants through whom you believed as the Lord assigned to each. Okay? So he makes mention of the fact that he's a servant that he's doing the Lord's work. He's going around sharing a verbal testimony for Christ. And as they're dividing over who their favorite guy is, he's saying, it's the Lord who's in charge. We're serving according to the work he has assigned. All right? And he goes on. He says, I planted, verse 6, Apollos watered, but God gives the growth. So he's using a metaphor of a plant. In other words, there's a seed, you've got to plant the seed, and the 
plant will come up as long as you water it and maintain it and take care of it. So he's saying, I planted this church here. I planted the seed. I preached the gospel. Apollos comes along. He's watered it. He's done some ministry here. But ultimately, at the end of the day, your growth, your maturity, your developing into the Christian life is all the result of God's intervention. Okay? So he moves on. Neither he who plants nor he who waters is anything. Only God who gives the growth. So he's confronting the, the party spirit. You guys are making a whole lot of Paul. You're making a whole lot of Apollos. Ultimately, those guys don't matter. The guy that matters in your growth into the Christian life is Jesus Christ. And so as we look at Paul and as we look at Apollos, we're like, yeah, those guys, they, they're, they're meaningless. Mm, meaningless but servants of God. Your growth in the Christian life hinges on how hard you chase after Jesus, how carefully you listen to what he says, and how closely you seek to imitate him. But, there's a big but here. The people who bring the teaching into your life, the people who serve God by telling you about Jesus, even though they are ultimately not the ones you're looking to to grow, God is using them. And apart from your spiritual growth, God is rewarding them. So how do you know that? Very next verse. He just says, it doesn't matter whether I plant or whoever waters, it's God who gives the growth. Verse 8, he who plants and he who waters are one. They're of the same character here. And each... Now look at this, will receive his wages according to his labor. Now, do you have to do anything to go to heaven? No. You believe in Jesus Christ. It's a simple act of faith. You repent of your sins knowing that they're wrong. You ask God to forgive you and you believe that he does forgive you based upon what Jesus Christ does on the cross. That's all that's necessary for salvation. There's not a single thing you need to do. Simple faith saves. We don't earn it as though it were a wage. And yet, wages have been paid and are continuing to be paid in order for you to hear about the gospel. It's free to you, but costly to God. And Paul makes mention of that. He who waters and he who plants, they're one. Each person, that is the planting person or the watering person, that is the person who first shares the gospel with you and helps you to come to faith versus the person who might lead you deeper in your faith, they're one, but they are going to receive a wage for their efforts according to their labor. The word wage is a highly technical word. I could get into it go through all kinds of word studies, show you what it means in certain contexts and in different passages, but at the end of the day, you know what we're going to come back to? Paycheck. Wage. It means exactly what it's translated as. In other words, you go to work. You work 9 to 5. You put in a 40-hour work week. You have agreed with your employer to perform a certain amount of labor, and in exchange for your labor, your employer promises to pay you a certain wage in exchange for your time and your labor. Whatever that wage may be, whatever the labor might be, you come to an agreement on these things, you understand these things, and you know that at the end of your working week, your boss owes you money. He is in your debt to pay you for what you have done. Wage. The scriptures here clearly teach that God is going to pay a wage for those individuals who labor on his behalf. Over in Matthew chapter 10, Jesus says it's a reward. Same concept. Now, if you and I enter into an employment situation with an employer and he wants us to perform a certain type of work. We're going to discuss it. He's going to evaluate my resume, you know, and make sure I'm qualified. I'm going to look at the money he's offering, and I'm going to try and decide whether or not it's worth 
my time and effort to engage the job doing whatever it might be for that particular wage. We encounter a little bit of a problem as we're looking at God and eternity. Again, this is one of those old jokes that I won't tell to make funny, just to make the point. There's a man, and again, it's one of those things that preachers say all the time, who knows where it comes from. There's a man who uh, wants to take all of his money with him to heaven. He's acquired much, much gold, and he uh, has it all here in gold bars and this nice, hefty nylon bag, and it, you know, the joke is he goes through this whole like drawn-out long process, and he figures a way, and, and he basically is able through this you know, rather trying and arduous process to take his gold with him to heaven. So he dies, and he goes to heaven, and he takes his gold with him, which we know is totally false. That's what makes the joke. Anyway, he gets there, and he gets, and you know, as the joke goes, he rolls on up to St. Peter's gate, and St. Peter's there, Peter's there, and he's like, hey, how's it going? It's good. You know, he's getting ready to let him into heaven. He says, what, you know, I've never seen anybody show up with a bag. What you got there? That's pretty cool. How'd you bring that here? What's, what's in the bag? And the guy's like, oh, it's my most treasured possession. It's all, it's all that I worked for in my whole life. It's everything that I gave myself to. And Peter says, oh, that's, let me see what's in the bag. The guy lays it down and he zips it open and he looks inside and it's all these gold bars. And Peter kind of looks at him and he does the, you know, the eyebrow raise. You know, gives him that weird look like, you're crazy, man. And he's like, what? This is gold bars. This is my whole life's work. He says, yeah, that's okay. If you want to bring that in with you, that's fine. He says, what? What's the problem? What are you saying? He says, well, you come to heaven. That's pavement. The streets are made of gold. You just worked so hard to bring your whole life savings with you and it amounts to nothing more than asphalt. So it begs the question, in a cashless society where gold has no meaning, no value, no relevance, where God promises to take care of our every need to house us, to shelter us, to feed us, to clothe us, to be our God, to look after us, in such a society as this, what would the reward be? Most of us, we can't conceive of that because the society in which you and I live, it's a total cash-based society. We have these dollar bills that are made out of plastic, that are, you know, shiny and have a little holographic image and multicolor and various denominations, fives and tens and twenties and hundreds and so forth. Everything we do, we're looking to make those $100 bills. I, I asked uh, Lydia this last week, and in the States we call them, you know, the Benjamins, because it's got a picture of Benjamin Franklin's face on the $100 bill. And you say, well, I'm working to earn the Benjamins. So what do you, what do you say here in Canada? You say, working to earn the Benjamins, even though that's not what our dollar bill is. You know, we don't really have an expression. That's basically an Americanism. And so I'm not sure what you would call it. But let, yet, nevertheless, that's how our society works, you know? We're working to earn money. Our money, it feeds us. Our money, it houses us. Our money, it pays for our kids to go to college. And for far too many of us, our ability to sleep at night without anxiety, without concern, hinges on our money, how much of it we have. To understand the reward that God is going to give us, in a society not based on money, we'd have to ask the question, what's it based on? And that's exactly what Paul is getting ready to say. If you look at verse 10, he makes the statement, according to the grace of God given to me, like a skilled master builder, I laid a foundation. This is the foundation. This is what it all hinges on. I laid a foundation, and now someone else is building upon it. And that's a reference to Apollos, and to a lesser extent, it's a reference to all of these people here in this church in Corinth based upon what they're doing on behalf of the Lord Jesus Christ. He says, like a skilled master builder, I laid a foundation, and now others are building upon it. Let Someone else is building upon it. Let each one take care how he builds upon it. Why? For no other foundation... For no one can lay a foundation other than that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. 
meaning that Jesus is the foundation. All effort is based upon the effort that we put into Jesus, in terms of how we build upon Jesus, in terms of whether Jesus is setting the stage, setting the standard, and guiding and directing how we build. Now, a foundation is critical. A foundation governs a couple of things. It governs basically how large of a building you can make. It governs how tall you can build that building. It actually has total control over the structure that goes up on it because you cannot build anything without a foundation. And whatever you build, if you're going to build it, it has to be guided by the foundation. And Paul's statement is, you got to take care how you build because no other foundation is getting laid down. Jesus is the only foundation and there's no cash in the society to which we're all going, which means if he's the foundation, if the building we're erecting, if the way that we're working is built upon him, then not only is he the starting point, but he is also the evaluator of the way that we build. How do you come up with that? Look further. It says, if anyone builds on the foundation, verse 12, with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, straw, each one's work will become manifest for the day will disclose it because it will be revealed by fire. And the fire will test what sort of work each one has done. Now, as you look at verses 12 and 13, there is a metaphor being employed here. He makes mention to costly things, gold, silver, precious stones, things that are not easily burned with fire. And then he makes a mention to things that are easily burned up with fire, wood, hay, and straw. The significance here is not that you and I are literally building anything literally with gold, silver, or precious stones, or wood, hay, and straw. The idea here is permanence, and it references the fact that it will be tested by fire. Again, this is not literal. You're not literally building it like a straw hut, like, you know, one of the three little pigs, you know, and you're not literally testing it with some fire to see whether or not it's going to hold up. It's a metaphor referencing specifically that day in which Jesus Christ will judge the living and the dead. There are two thrones, there are, excuse me, there are two judgments mentioned in Scripture. First judgment, the dreadful judgment, the one that we all want to avoid at all possible costs, referred to in Revelation is the great white throne judgment. Individuals who reject Jesus Christ will stand before that judgment. The book of Revelation describes it as a terrible scene in which it is so terrifying. The way Revelation puts it, even the sky and the earth flee away. That is not a judgment you want to go to. And the good news is, if you have placed your faith in Jesus Christ, you are saved from that judgment. It makes a statement in Romans. Don't flip there, just listen. In Romans chapter 8, verse 1, Paul writing to the Roman believers, and by extension, a promise that you and I can claim. If anyone is in Christ, the verse starts off, there is now, therefore, no condemnation. You will not be condemned based upon your faith in Jesus Christ. That's my pulpit talking. Just emphasizing the point. Trust in Jesus. Amen. See, the earth agrees. Trust in Jesus. If you trust in Jesus, there is no condemnation. There is no judgment. There is not going to be any negative repercussions for those of you who have trusted in Jesus Christ. All your bad deeds are forgotten. The scripture says that as far as the east is from the west, so far has he removed our sins from us. He can't think about them. He can't remember them. When he looks at us, he only sees the righteousness and the clothing that Christ has purchased for us. Now, here's the problem. We hear that and we're like, woohoo, no judgment. Awesome. But there is still a judgment. Not a judgment of condemnation. This is one of those tongue twister moments that I rehearsed throughout the week. Not a judgment of condemnation, but a judgment of commendation. In other words, Christ is going to evaluate what we have done in the body. 
And while there is no judgment for our sins, and while there is no repercussions for anything that we have done that is wrong, Christ is very much so going to sift our lives looking for the good, looking for the acts of service that we performed in order to reward us for it. Say, where does that come from, Josh? This is from Romans chapter 14. It makes the statement in verse 10, we will all stand before the judgment seat of God. It is written, as I live, says the Lord, every knee shall bow to me and every tongue shall confess to God. So then each of us will give an account of himself to God. Over in, Rome, in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, Paul makes this additional statement, we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ. Now he's writing to Christians. He's writing to believers. We must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each one may receive what is due. Again, a reference to wages, a reference to earnings. That we may receive what is due for what has been done in the body, whether good or evil. Now you hear that and you're like, whoa, 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 you just said there's no condemnation. That's right. So we will show up at the judgment seat of Christ and if we've lived the life of sin, if we've been total carnal Christians, if we've lived totally pagan lives, even though we trust in Jesus, even though we're going to heaven, you just said we could do that and there would be no condemnation. That's right. That's what Romans chapter 8 verse 1 says. There will be no negative condemnation. I want you to think about it though. If you live a life that is totally pagan, in which you have done nothing to bring any honor or any glory or any joy to your Lord and Savior, and you show up at a rewards banquet where they're handing out rewards, how would you feel if everyone else gets a reward and you don't? So while there's no condemnation, while there's no judgment, no negative judgment for you, it's possible that as you stand before the judgment seat of Christ, you'll still feel regret. And as Paul alludes to here in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, you will still experience a loss. Look at what he says. Oh, I've got to go back to 1 Corinthians. Look at what he says here in 1 Corinthians chapter 3. He makes a statement. Verse 14, if the work that anyone has built on the foundation survives, he will receive a reward. If anyone's work is burned up, that is, it doesn't survive, Christ evaluates it, he looks at it, he says, it's no good, I'm not going to reward you for that. If anyone's work burns up, look at the phrase, he will suffer loss, though he himself will be saved, but only as through fire. The tail end of what Paul says here in 1 Corinthians chapter, th midway through 1 Corinthians chapter 3, specifically in verse 15, he says, if you don't have anything to show for it, it's as though you've been saved, but through the fire. Now again, this is all metaphorical language, but the point is that there is very much so a rewards banquet waiting in heaven for us. There is very much so an opportunity for reward presented to us, and whether or not we attain that reward, it's up to us as a wage. Now, this begs the question, what kinds of rewards could we expect? What kinds of things are there waiting for us? It's difficult to say with any certainty. However, there appears to be clearly distinctions made for different types of rewards based upon different types of service. Throughout the New Testament, you'll find mention of four crowns. The first crown is the crown of glory. 
1 Peter 5.4, if you could grab that, Levi, 1 Peter 5.4, the Apostle Peter, as a pastor exhorting fellow pastors, as an elder in the church exhorting fellow elders, he tells them, I want you to, ex- I want you to uh, shepherd the flock of God that is among you, not under compulsion, but willingly. And he makes the statement, you do this faithfully, 1 Peter 5.4, when the chief shepherd appears, here's the promise, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. Couldn't that just be a, an expression that's unique to Peter? Couldn't that just be an idiom or just a way of expressing something? The problem is that Peter's not the only one that says it. Paul also says it. Next verse I want you to consider is 1 Thessalonians, blah, 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 blah. First Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 19. P, uh, Paul has planted the church in Thessalonica, and he's encouraging them and exhorting them to go on and to press on into the fullness of the Christian life. And he makes this statement, therefore, sorry, for what is our hope or joy, now look at this, or crown of boasting before our Lord Jesus at his coming? Is it not you? Again, a reference to the church at Thessalonica, a reference to Paul's work there helping to build the church at Thessalonica. And his statement there to the Thessalonian believers is, when Jesus comes back, what will I have for him beyond you? Philippians chapter 4, verse 1. Same author, different church, church of Philippi. Therefore, my brothers, whom I love and long for, notice the way he talks about them, my joy and crown. Stand firm thus in the Lord, my beloved. Okay, so it's an expression that Peter uses, it's an expression that Paul uses. Still, I don't know that you've really fully captured this whole thing. Next, next one up. James. James 1.12. Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial. For when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life, which God has promised to those who love him. This is not an expression isolated to one or two individuals. We find it now in three different authors. This is not a figure of speech, you know, relegated to just one person. It's used across the spectrum here of different authors in the New Testament. So there's something going on here with this expression. There's something significant being said here. The scriptures promise some sort of reward. So the question comes, is this a literal crown that we will put on our heads? There's three of them that you've mentioned so far. Like, am I going to put three? Let's say I work my guts out and I I earn all three of them. How am I going to fit all those doodads up there? I don't know that it's going to be a literal crown. I don't know that you can press the scriptures that hard. But what I do know is they are referencing something very specific Noticeably, it is a demarcation of honor. It is a mark of glory. And three different authors refer to it using three different churches, talking to three different groups of people and expressing it in slightly different terms all across the board. So there seems to be a clear indication, and if you understand it, we're going to look at it next week, what this crown would have meant in the first century, particularly to those individuals living in Corinth, you know that it's not necessarily the crown that is important, it's what the crown symbolizes. And that symbol, as far as the scriptures are concerned, are awarded based upon merit. And we're going to spend the next four weeks looking at that. We're going to look at what kinds of rewards are there to be had and what we can gain. Now, as our time this morning comes to a close... I want you to look back at 1 Corinthians chapter 3. Look specifically at verse 12. Paul makes the statement, now if anyone builds. It's entirely possible that you may not serve your Lord. You may not build alongside of Christ. 
It's not a foregone conclusion. It's not a fait accompli. Paul, even in this text, does not assume that we are all building, that we're all building correctly. His statement is, if anyone builds, this is how he needs to do it. But he doesn't assume that we're going to build. Now, there are songs written, we sang one of them just this morning. And there are people out there who will argue with you, and I hear it all the time. You know, we should just do the right thing just because it's the right thing. We should just serve God because it's right. We should just give our all to Him because it's appropriate to do so. And this talk of rewards, this talk of being awarded some special honor or some special recognition by Christ, this, this talk of being given some sort of glory at the end of time, you know, that's all silly talk. We should just do it because the Lord has asked us to do it. That's not what motivated Paul exclusively. Did he love the Lord? Yeah, he did. Was he grateful for God saving him, as he describes himself in Timothy, as the worst of all sinners, the chief of sinners? Yeah. In Philippians chapter 1, he says, to die is gain, to live is Christ. And he openly shares with the church of Philippi his struggle. Man, I want to see the Lord. I would like to go to heaven. That would be awesome. I know that if I stay, it means fruitful labor. I struggle back and forth in terms of the choice. Should I go to heaven? Should I stay here and continue to serve? And he tells them, I'm going to stay behind because it means fruitful labor. But you know, the, the cry of Paul's heart was that he wanted to see the Lord. That's the cry of my heart too, and I know that's the cry of many of your hearts. There's a day coming in which we're going to be able to see Jesus Christ in the flesh, face to face. I don't know if you've ever thought about it what you would say to him when you see him for the first time. I have. I've never told anyone this before. I have a journal, and I've written out several times like a little speech I'd like to give when I first see him. I, wanna, I don't want to be caught flat-footed, you know, when the moment comes, be like, I don't know what to say. I want to I have something good to say, you know, like something that expresses my gratitude and my love and my sincere appreciation for all that he's ever done for me and all that he continues to do. I want him to know that I recognize how much it cost him to give me eternity. I want him to know that his sacrifice is not lost on me. So I do. It may sound weird, but I, I have this speech. Every year I go back and I, I kind of tweak it, I modify it, it gets longer and longer, and then I'm like, this is too long, I'll never remember this. I start to delete it, edit it, and then I tweak it, and I'm like, oh, but I look back at previous speeches, I like that one, and it becomes this like ongoing struggle, right? Like, the right speech to meet Jesus with. I want to meet him, just to say thank you. And the truth is, so much of what I do, it is motivated purely by gratitude. But it is undeniable that there are rewards promised for those who are faithful. In other words, while he appreciates the service that's performed out of gratitude, it pleases him to reward and honor those who serve him. Paul, at the tail end of his life, he makes this statement to Timothy. He says, at my first defense, he, he's on trial before Caesar. He says, at my first defense, no one came to stand by me. All deserted me so that all, nobody, nobody stood by me, but all deserted me. May it not be charged against them. The Lord stood by me and strengthened me so that through me the message might be fully proclaimed. He's on trial for his life. It's a very real possibility that he's going to be executed. Not because the Roman government cares one way or the other about all this nonsense about Jesus, but just because his preaching of it causes such, such a riot and such an up, a, a, a revolt everywhere he goes, an uprising everywhere he goes. For that simple fact alone, Rome is ticked off at Paul. He stands before Caesar, and you'd expect him to say, 
I don't know what everybody's talking about. I don't know. I just have this religious beliefs. I like to keep it to myself. I'm not sure what's... He could have just totally lied his way out of it. He says, at the trial, all of his friends left. He's got this opportunity to preach the gospel. He's so terrified, he makes mention of the fact that Jesus strengthens him in order to help him get through it. Do you know what he says right before he says that, though? I am already being poured out as a drink offering. The time of my departure has come. I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. Henceforth, there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness. The crown of righteousness which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day, and not only to me, but also to all who have loved his appearing. In his final moments, faced with the reality of execution for his faith, do you know what propels the man across the finish line? Love of God? Absolutely. Love of Jesus? Absolutely. In addition to that, a certain knowledge that for his faithfulness, Jesus will honor him. That there is a tangible reward coming for those who will serve their king. Bridge Baptist Church, I want you to know that Christ calls us to many things. Some of them we're called to do because he's our Lord. And there are many other things we can do to honor our Lord. And if you've ever thought that it's not worthwhile to serve Christ, I want you to know that it absolutely is. Indeed, the prospect of the reward is what further drives faithfulness to him. And my prayer for you is that you would chase hard after all the glory and after all the honor that Christ has for you. Let's bow for a word of prayer.